Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the factors affecting our attitudes and actions to motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. We start the program by talking about the reasons we chose to drive from Sydney to Melbourne, a distance of nearly a thousand kilometres, as opposed to flying or catching the train. And then we play some vox pops of people we met along the way. We then talk to our road test expert, Evan Jones, about the Subaru Crosstrek, a small SUV formerly known as the XV. Then we ask Evan about his long trips in a variety of cars, from the Elegant Saloon to the Lotus sports car. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or look up our socials under the name Cars Transport Culture. This program was first broadcast on the 23rd of September 2023. I had to go down to Melbourne from Sydney for a transport conference and my wife joined me on the trip. I had to compare the first session of the conference titled Transport Modelling, Guessing the Future or Facilitating Change. I considered my travel options. Flying is obviously the quickest, although the one and a half hours flying time is really just a small component of the total trip. The other great restriction of the plane is the limitation on baggage. The train service takes over 11 hours, but it's a great opportunity to be able to quietly get on with some work or general reading without the usual distractions. The huge limitation is that the trains don't have Wi-Fi nor any standard PowerPoint plugs to keep my computer charged, but you can take a reasonable amount of luggage. We decided that we would drive, not in a mad rush, but gently and with room to take all our bags. We would stop halfway, both coming and going from Melbourne. We took the latest Toyota Corolla ZS hybrid model. Last time I did a long trip in a Corolla was when I was 16 years old, many years ago. We went from Sydney to Brisbane and back. My colleague owned the car and did most of the driving. I was too young to officially be able to drive. The modern Corolla has grown in size and is about the same dimensions as a 1964 EH Holden, which was considered a good-sized family car at the time. The result this time was very pleasurable. We spent $220 on petrol for the whole trip, with the car averaging 5.5 litres per 100 kilometres. We listened to some podcasts that I had always intended to do, and there was time to think creatively without the usual distractions of telephones, emails, social media or visitors. We will do a more detailed road test on the vehicle in the future, but this experience has also meant that all future road tests will have a stronger emphasis on things like boot space, ease of access and comfort on a long trip. The other wonderful part of the experience was stopping in a number of small towns along the way to stay overnight or just have a rest stop without the frantic rush dictated by a tight timetable that usually makes for a quick break in a large impersonal service centre. We met some locals on the way including a First Nation elder, Larry Walsh, who described how his local community is more at ease than the hustle and bustle that typifies a major city. I'm um, actually one of the local uh, Tunnerong people, which is, oh. this is our tribal area. Oh, lovely. 
And I always live in my tribal area yeah. so I could raise my children knowing their history. Um, I'm a storyteller, oral historian, and uh, if there's something Aboriginal in the region which goes all the way to Mount Buller, I'll know it. Is that right? Yeah. I love that. Sorry, i just been to a transport conference yeah. and I make the point that I love the First Nations culture of awareness of the environment around them. Now, well, when we travel, we zoom past in our four-wheel drives. You guys sing song lines. And, uh, yeah, well, for me, um, it's about... I teach the young that some of the things that we hold from the past are part of their future. Like, um, I have worked in um, establishing uh, the revival of Aboriginal arts. I used to brag I was the youngest member. <laughs> now I brag that I'm the second oldest. Um, I, I'm getting to the stage where people stand up for me on a bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for me, it's more... Um, I like smaller towns because you can live just as who you are. Um, yeah, everyone, even, well, like in this town, I can walk up the street and there's some people I recognise, they recognise me, we say g'day. Uh, it's a pretty good neighbourhood. Mm. Um, some people think at times, because this is a was a bikey town or something and there's something wrong with it uh, no we don't have too many problems because yeah I have neighbours that ride bikes but they're okay uh, we uh, go to some New Year's Eve stuff together and mm. everything it's it's a quite friendly town really I, I interviewed some of the guys that ride you know, locals going for a ride it's a lovely idea yeah um well, most of the uh, uh, people that ride bikes up here are semi-retired. You know, uh, they're like me, being parents or grandparents. Mm. And um, they just want their kids in a good, safe environment. And um, here, we don't have a uh, you know, uh, problem with um, people running amok. We don't have um, too big a... Yeah, you don't crime problem or anything. yeah crime or anything like that. So it's a good little town that way, um, and like a lot of country towns, if I can't find my kids, someone will know where they are. <laughs> yeah, because all the kids go yeah. to the same places. Is that sort of you know, the First Nation concept of not having just big high-powered leaders or that, but having a community that knows how to look after itself? Yes. Yeah, but at the same time, I uh, have worked for 40 years on Aboriginal history, uh, Aboriginal arts, Aboriginal culture, and um, I find that the past leaders didn't explain much. They just expected you to do it and then learn later. Whereas today's generation, you've got to explain a little bit to them. Um, I'm quite pleased to say that uh, myself and my friends, uh, we work on the idea that the next generation and the next one after that uh, 
we want them to advance more than we did. Mm. Like, I only went to second form. Um, and now your children are going to university. Yeah. Yeah, but they're also... Well, one of my daughters, uh, as I say, she's on the ABC Arts uh, thing wow. next week because she got an award for how she's been encouraging other artists, young ones, mm. to uh, go further. Mm. Um, In Broadford, I met Wayne, who was filling up his Harley Davidson for a gentle Sunday ride. And Shane, you're doing a, a, a little loop. I thought that meant the main street. What does it actually cover? Oh, probably about 150, 160k, <laughs> which is only little for us. <laughs> And which towns will you pick up? Uh, Leave from Kilmore, filling up in Broadford, uh, to Yea, Seymour, Tallarook, back to Kilmore. So it's a little bit of a Sunday afternoon drive. Yeah, and it's got everything. It's got a hill climb in it, uh, windy roads, very little highway, which is what we like. And it's actually a quiet ride because not many people go around that path. You've described your bike how? My bike is a change of life. <laughs> From cars to... I, I used to like dirt bike riding and I had a few accidents and now I went and bought a Harley and that's my new dirt bike on the road. <laughs> and how big is it? What's the capacity? Uh, 1,200. It's only little. <laughs> for a Harley. For, yeah, but for a car, you know, I mean, my first car had much less. Uh yeah, I've got, got some nice cars and I've got a V8 at home, so I've got to have something, something that goes all right. <laughs> In the next few weeks or so, we will reflect on a number of experiences we came across when gently travelling down the highway. These include getting off the latest motorways and back onto sections of the old Hume Highway, which reminded us of how far we had come in safe and comfortable motoring and how places like a vineyard now offer the chance for a comfort stop and a cup of coffee in a much more pleasant environment, how towns are surviving now that they have been bypassed by sections of the motorway, some crazy behaviours you see on the roads, and at least one location on the old road that was a renowned police speed trap. You're listening to Overdrive. The small SUV market has a range of uh, cutesy cars on there, yet there's been one company that's been around for some time and in this market and having all their vehicles as all-wheel drives. Of course, there's Subaru. Their small SUV used to be called the XV. They've now changed the name to the more trendy Crosstrek. And our good friend Evan Jones has been driving it just recently. Evan, good day. How are you? Right, good, thanks. I think you have some family relations who have Subarus and like them particularly. How did you find that this, what is deemed to be a little SUV? Yeah, just as an aside, yeah, I had a, a WRX back in the early noughties, which I managed to put 200,000 kilometres on. So I've got an affection for Subarus. This particular car, 
I've got to tell you, for its target market, I was pretty impressed with. Mm. It looks sleeker than most SUVs. It's almost wagon-like, but it's a lovely car to drive. Everything's nice and tight. It's responsive to the steering. Overall, quite impressed. They do have the one two-litre engine for all their particular models. It's in a class that is at the moment being dominated by the MG ZS, which has so far this year 20,000 sales. The combined of the old model Subaru XV and this newly called and new vehicle, the Crosstrek, would be about six and or so, six and a half thousand vehicles. So you can see that the MG is doing particularly well. I do agree with the external looks as being having to achieve something that just doesn't look either too cutesy or too box-like. It just manages to get a little bit of style to it. Yes, yeah, you're right there. It looks purposeful, but doesn't look rough and certainly doesn't look bland. So I think they've done a good job there. The engine is a classic, of course, Subaru Boxster four-cylinder. No turbocharging, but just uh, two litres. And it puts out, you mentioned the power, 115 kilowatts of power, but at a pretty high rev, 6,000 revs, and 110 kilowatts, again, at some very high revs. The lack of a turbocharger means that you're going to have to screw the neck of it a bit harder to get to the maximum power. But the thing I liked about it, it meets Euro 6B fuel standards, which I think is rather good. The gearbox, CVT, did you like that? Not a fan. It forces the engine to be a bit wily, if you like, because uh, being a CVT, it doesn't neatly change gears like your traditional automatic. But the car wasn't overly noisy, particularly if you turn the radio up a little bit, so it, mm. it wasn't earth-shattering. But mm. no, I'm not a fan of CVTs. They say that they had 80% of the components have been altered. I think... Subaru has done well. I noticed it in the Outback where the previous model, I didn't like the CVT at all. And the new model, they didn't claim huge changes, but I think there were enough changes to make it better. Fuel consumption is a 7.2 litres per 100 kilometres. There is a hybrid and that's 6.5. Now, the interesting thing is that fuel consumption is a reduction of about 10%, a little bit near 11% in carbon dioxide, but the fuel tank on the hybrid, which has about the same horsepower and torque, the fuel tank is 24% reduced from 63 litres to 48. The fuel consumption is down about 10%, but your available fuel is uh, reduced by 23. If you do go for the hybrid, it would be restricting your range. The interior It has that infotainment screen that is portrait, more vertical than it is horizontal. Did you find getting used to that easy? Yes. Yes, actually, something I really liked about the car is that, the, as you say, the screen's portrait, the buttons are nice and big and easy to read. They're always in the same spot no matter when you start the car. (laughs) And some of my favourite buttons are right there when I start the car, which is absolutely brilliant, you know, which buttons we're talking about. The vertical nature of it, the portrait, does tend to do it in layers, isn't it? It's like a sedimentary rock that there's a bottom layer for control of temperatures. Press that and you get more detail. Then then you move up to more central ones, and above that there's a bit more detail. But as you say, you adapted quite uh, comfortably. I was quite impressed with myself at how 
quickly it is to uh, get used to. So that's probably more a kick of the car than it is of me. <laughs> no, I was really happy with that. You were also, of course, having tested a wide range of cars now. You're getting more familiar with being unfamiliar and coping, I presume. A comfort for you, you know, sitting in, in uh, the car. How did you cope with that? Okay, probably the my biggest criticism, but then again, as you you would be aware, I tend to cover a fair acreage of seat when I sit on it, and there's not enough acreage on those seats. That's what made me think I was definitely in one of the cooking versions rather than a luxury version. That would be my biggest criticism of the car, but then again, that's because of my shortcomings probably more so than the car's shortcomings. Room in the back, mainly for two people, would the, the car be? Not a lot of room in the back? You know, the, the seating seating space is remarkable for a car of its size, I thought. My favourite test is to set up the seat for myself in the driver's seat and then immediately jump in the back. And if I can fit in the back, as well as when someone my size is in the front, that's a big tick for any car. Well, it's not bad, isn't it, for what is a small SUV? Yeah, and then you've got all that luggage space um, behind the seat, which is fantastic. I think it would be a really good uh, car for a small family. There is one feature I hope you didn't test out, and that is that they have a reverse automatic braking. We know that when driving forward, if something jumps in front of the car, most modern cars now, of course, will jam on the brakes, but this will also do it in reverse. In the first model, XV, that I went on the launch for, again, not to be tested, but interesting to have. I can say I didn't know about that. That's good. (laughs) And panoramic 360-degree, it adds some more features that Subaru is very proud of. Driving the car, it has speed sign recognition, lane centering. I presume you turn that off. You're not a great fan of that. But in terms of the information in front of the driver, the actual 4.2-inch screen doesn't give you great variability. Uh, Were you happy with what you could set up and what you could use directly in front of the driver? Yeah, for me, yes. I'm one of fairly simple tastes. I had the digital speedo in front of me and one or two other little things. So for me, that wasn't a great drama. Um, As you say, the things I needed to turn off are very easy to turn off. The lane keeping, I actually couldn't find where to turn that off, but mercifully, <laughs> it's nowhere near as intrusive as some of the other cars we've driven, so that's okay. It didn't fight me on the wheel. It did beep at me, but it didn't fight me on the wheel. I can live with the beep. I don't like me the steering wheel being taken out of my hands. So. Some of them vibrate the steering wheel, which I think may be the best answer in that it's haptic feedback without noise but then again i'm very sensitive to noise maybe that's because of the children i had i don't know the important point about it i used the lane keeping assistant wasn't too bad it it didn't vary or try and wander in the lane in any way you're right about the steering fighting you i was driving another car during the week which we'll talk about in a minute of course with lane keep assist you have to keep holding on to the steering wheel and that's not a bad thing, and you have to keep giving a bit of input to it, but sometimes just giving that bit of input is fighting the wheel. It's not when you move out of the lane, it's that it's keeping you well within the lane, but if you give it a little bit of input, there's a great resistance to it. I find that can be rather tiring. Sounds like a marriage, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. The the Subaru is much more subtle. It gave an occasional beat, but it never tried to fight the wheel, which is 
which is comforting. So All of them are all-wheel drive. All of them have the two-litre, but then there is also the hybrid, which I confess, getting the hybrid gets, what did I say, 6.2 litres per 100. That's suggesting a rather mild hybrid. The Toyotas would do better than that. They would be around the 4.2. The Cross Trek, all-wheel drive Subaru 2-litre, the base model, the L, $35,000. The next model up is about 38 and a half. And then the top of the line all-wheel drive with just the petrol engine, $41,500. It looks like the hybrid is about an extra $3,500 to add to it. So that makes the top of the range one $45,000. Mild hybrids, I think, aren't going far enough. And I, I don't think the performance in this one, well, I think it does confirm that they don't go far enough. Evan, we'll uh, take a break for a moment. I want to talk to you about the long trip driving Sydney to Melbourne okay. and your past experiences with that. You're listening to Overdrive. And we're back with Evan Jones. And Evan, when was the last time you drove Sydney to Melbourne? That would have been April. Okay. Uh, so I drove down to the uh, Grand Prix. Do you do it often? I drive to Melbourne at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. And you went down in the Lotus? Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> yes. Okay, so in the last 12 months I drove, I drove two and a half times. I didn't think of that. I do the Jag every year. Uh, that's the Grand Prix. And, yes, I did drive down because I was on my way to Tasmania in the Agora. I forgot about that. The Jag is a saloon. Uh, what model have you got? XE Sport Diesel. And the uh, Lotus is quite different. Are they significantly different in a tiring manner of driving these different vehicles? You're right. They're a totally different driving experience. I've driven them both to Tamworth as well, which is interesting. The Jag just does everything so effortlessly. You cruise down to Melbourne in under nine hours without pushing it if you wanted to, and you don't stop. You probably have to stop because your bladder will make you stop. But the car will do the full trip and still have 200 k's of fuel left in it. So I'm waiting for the day when a hybrid can do that. Currently, only the only my diesel can do it as far as I can tell. The Evora, it's a much more exciting machine and probably it's certainly a nicer sounding machine to drive. One has to stop because the fuel tank's a bit smaller and it's a bigger engine and it's petrol. So they're different experiences. I don't think either of them would... I don't think the Evora would actually make you any more tired because you need to be a bit more alert because you've got to change your own gears and things like that. I wonder if the Evora, the Lotus, may well have been a more desirable car on the old road and is perhaps or highlights the mundaneness of the new, no, the newer road, the, the, the obviously the motorway where you can travel without having to stop at any traffic lights. The Evora's a, a, a GT in, in the old sense. Uh, before the Evora, I had, the, you might remember, I had the Elise. The Elise was a sports car in every sense of the word. It was stripped out. You know, a radio was a, was a luxury, which it had. But uh, it was loud. It was the, su- the suspension was, well, I have to say, hard. You, you knew you'd been on a long trip in that car. Yeah, you've always a GT and it's a cruiser with all the with the aircon and the and the leather and the beautifully sounding engine. And of course, then the Jag is just meant to go forever and ever and ever. You do it in one hit. We went down to Melbourne. I had to go to a conference. 
we did it gently. We stopped halfway on each occasion, which was rather nice because, A, you, you thought for times to get off the beaten track and enjoy a little local community more than just seeing petrol stations on a motorway. But you always would drive through? Going down, yes, I go straight through, stopping when the bladder demands it. But returning, I quite often I've picked out some attraction I'd like to have a look at on the way back, like the Puckapunyal Tank Museum, or um, or I might stop uh, and have a look at the, I uh, can't remember the name of the town, where the submarine is. Holbrook. Holbrook, thank you. It's also a great place for a pie, by the way. Ah. So uh, I might stop there. That's an enjoyable part of it, isn't it, that... It's not a cost-benefit analysis in terms of what does it cost in fuel and time. And there is an emotional thing of enjoying that break and seeing something of interest that you wouldn't get to see at any other time while you're in the city. Correct. You're in the vicinity on the way home. Let's stop and have a look. Yeah. Because going going down, I like to get to the place because that's the whole point of going. But coming home... You're a lot more relaxed, so yeah, that's when I make the, the two diversions. Here's the thing. Going down in a lease, let alone, well, in a Vora, let alone a, a lease, you would have to pack fairly carefully. One thing I hate about flying down is that I've got to be so meticulous about, and given that we carry electronic gear for recording things, I've got to be meticulous about what I pack. You would ha- also have to do the same if you're in a Lotus sports car? Surprisingly, no. When the wife and I went down to – when we went down to Melbourne, we actually went on to Tasmania. We caught the, the ferry across and went to Tasmania. We were gone for 10 days. And that, that car quite happily carried enough luggage for two people for 10 days because you've got a massive amount of space behind the seats. Oh. The boot's small, but you've got a back seat, which you can't put anyone in unless they're an amputee, but there's heaps of luggage room. So that's how you get away with it. I still must compliment you that I think you pack a little lighter than we do. I'm the guy who took a Kia Carnival to the snow with four people. It's a people mover just to be able to, in other words, not having to organise and control the packing. There was just enough room to keep putting stuff in. But I admire that, Evan. I think you you must do it much better than, than we do. Well, you know, Kay was Japanese and she has innate efficiency uh, as part of the DNA. So I can't take the credit. <laughs> Don't tell my wife she might want to remarry somebody of uh, a more appropriate culture. Fair enough. The diesel, how big the diesel capacity for your Jag? The Jag's a two-litre. It's They call it the Ingenium diesel. It's a two-litre turbo. And in typical diesel fashion, the turbo is huge. But, of course, it has bags and bags of torque. And then it's fitted to an eight-speed gearbox, which is pretty seamless. So but it's a car that uh, I think is going to be around this house for quite a long time. I'm very, very happy with it. What size petrol tank have you got? Give or take about 60 litres. That's not bad. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's how I can go to Melbourne. And I can get to, so I can get to Melbourne and it still has 200 kilometres of fuel left in it. Oh, that's unbelievable. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. I went down in a hybrid Corolla and I had to fill up, but it had about seven to 800 range. But of course, Melbourne now is nearer the 1,000 K 
kilometres, well, not now, but it, it is nearer the 1,000 kilometres from where I start to where I finished. So that must be nice not to think that you have to stop. The reason I don't have a hybrid is I find it hard to justify carrying all that extra weight when I've got a car that will do under four litres per 100 kilometres. Not many hybrids can do that. Oh, no. And actually on a trip like that, a hybrid is not at its best necessarily. Uh, the lovely thing about hybrids is the inner city, the urban sort of environments of which they go. Correct. All right. Well, horses for courses. What a lovely thought, Evan. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. All right, mate. And that's Evan Jones, who is our road tester, but also has a long history of enjoying our great country and travelling through it with his love of cars and different cars for different situations, but perhaps some unexpected uh, enjoyment that we might not have thought about in terms of some sports cars. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones, Larry Walsh, Shane and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or check out our social media sites, Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.